Section six of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter six The Paunch Boat. Such was Gilliatt. The young girls thought him ugly. He was not ugly. He was possibly handsome. There was a certain antique barbarian grace in his profile. In repose, he resembled a Dacian of the column of Trajan. His ear was small, delicate, without any lobe, and of an admirable form for hearing. Between his eyebrows was that proud vertical wrinkle which indicates the bold and persevering man. The corners of his mouth drooped, which denotes bitterness. His brow had a certain serene and noble curve. His frank eye looked at one steadily, although troubled by that contraction of the lids which fishermen acquire from the reflection of the waves. His laugh was youthful and charming. No ivory was whiter than his teeth. But the sun had burned him almost as black as a negro. One cannot meddle with the impunity with the ocean, the tempest, and the night. At thirty years of age he appeared forty-five. He wore the somber mask of the winds and of the sea. He had received the nickname of Gilliatt, the Crafty. An Indian fable says, One day Brahma asked Force, Who is stronger than you? She replied, Adroitness. A Chinese proverb says, What could not the lion do if he were a monkey? Gilliatt was neither a lion nor a monkey, but the things that he did confirmed the Chinese proverb and the Hindu fable. Of ordinary stature and ordinary strength, he was able, so inventive and powerful was his dexterity, to lift the burdens of a giant and to perform the prodigies of an athlete. There was something of the gymnast about him. He used with equal facility his right hand or his left. He did not hunt, but he fished. He spared birds, but not fish. Woe to the dumb! He was an excellent swimmer. Solitude creates men of talent, or idiots. Gilliatt presented himself under both aspects. At times he was seen with the astonished air of which we have spoken, and one would have taken him for a brute. At other moments he had an indescribably deep glance. Ancient Calde had men like this. At certain hours the dullness of the shepherd became transparent and allowed the mage to be seen. In short, he was only a poor man who knew how to read and write. It is probable that he stood on the boundary line between the dreamer and the thinker. The thinker wills, the dreamer is passive. Solitude adds to the simple and modifies them to a certain extent. They become permeated, unconsciously, with a kind of sacred awe. The gloom in which Gilliatt's mind dwelt was composed in almost equal quantities of two elements, both dark, but very different. Within him, ignorance, weakness, outside of him, mystery, immensity. By dint of climbing the rocks, scaling the cliffs, going and coming in the archipelago in all weathers, of managing the first boat which presented itself, of risking himself day and night in the most difficult passages, he had come to be a surprising seaman. 
but without drawing any advantage from it, and for his own whim and pleasure. He was a born pilot. The true pilot is the mariner who navigates the bottom of the sea even more than its surface. The waves are an external problem, continually complicated by the submarine configuration of the places through which the vessel's course is directed. It seemed when one beheld Gilliatt sailing across the shallows and reefs of the Norman archipelago, as though he possessed, beneath the arch of his cranium, a chart of the bottom of the sea. He knew all, and braved all. He knew the buoys in the channels better than the cormorants who perched upon them. The imperceptible differences which distinguish the four upright buoys of the Creux, Alligant, the Tremis, and the Sadrette from each other were perfectly distinct and clear to him even in a fog. He neither hesitated over the stake with an oval ball at Anfray, nor the triple lance-iron of Le Rousse, nor the white ball of La Corbette, nor the black ball of Lompierre, and there was no fear of his confounding the cross of Goubeau with the sword planted in the earth at La Platte, nor the hammer-buoy of the Barbet and the swallow-tailed buoy of the Moulinet. His rare science as a mariner was demonstrated with especial brilliancy one day when there was at Guernsey one of those sorts of maritime jousts called regattas. The problem was as follows. To navigate alone a boat with four sails from St. Sampson to the Isle of Erm, which is one league distant, and to bring it back to St. Sampson. There is no fisherman who cannot maneuver a boat with four sails, and the difficulty does not seem to be great, but this is what increased it. In the first place, the boat itself, which was one of those large and heavy deep-bellied boats of the Rotterdam pattern, which the sailors of the last century called Dutch paunches, this ancient Holland lighter, low-lying and broad in the beam, with leeboards on the starboard and port sides, which are let go sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other, according to the wind, and which take the place of a keel, are still to be met with occasionally at sea. In the second place, the return from Erm was rendered more difficult by a heavy ballast of stone. They were to go out empty and return loaded. The prize of the contest was the paunch. It was given in advance to the winner. This paunch had served as a pilot boat. The pilot who had commanded and sailed it for twenty years was one of the most robust mariners of the channel. At his death no one could be found to sail her, and it was decided to make it the prize of a regatta. Though not decked over, she had good qualities and might tempt a skillful seaman. The mast was placed on the bow, which increased the drawing power of the sails. Another advantage, the mast did not interfere with the cargo. It had a solid hull, heavy but roomy, and kept the open sea well, a really serviceable boat. There was much eagerness in the contest. The task was a hard one, but the prize was fine. Seven or eight fishermen, the most vigorous on the island, presented themselves. They tried in turn. Not one of them could get as far as Helm. The last who contended was noted for having rowed, in rough weather, across the redoubtable gut which lies between Sark and Brecou. 
Dripping with perspiration, he brought back the boat and said, It is impossible. Then Gilia stepped into the craft, first seized the oar, next the main sheet, and stood out to the open sea. Then, without making fast the sheet, which would have been imprudent, and without letting go of it, which kept the sail under his control, he allowed the sheet to run along the traveler at the will of the wind without falling to leeward, and grasped the helm with his left hand. In three-quarters of an hour he was at Elm. Three hours later, although a strong south wind had risen and was blowing across the roadstead, he returned to St. Sampson with his cargo of stones. By way of luxury and bravado he had added to the cargo the little bronze cannon of Helm, which the people of that isle fired every year on the 5th of November in sign of rejoicing over the death of Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes has been dead, we may remark in passing, two hundred and sixty years. Tis a very long period of joy. Gilliard, thus overloaded and encumbered, steered back, one might say brought back, the boat to St. Sampson, although he had the Guy Fawkes cannon on board besides. On seeing this, Mes Lechirie exclaimed, Here's a bold sailor, and he offered his hand to Gilia. We shall speak of Mes Lechirie again. The paunch was adjudged to Gilia. This adventure did not injure his nickname of the crafty. Some persons declared that there was nothing astonishing about the thing, since Gilia had concealed a branch of wild melier in his boat, but this could not be proved. From that day forth Gilia had no other vessel but the paunch. In that heavy craft he went fishing. He moored it in the very good little anchorage which he had for his private use under the very wall of his house of the Bue de la Rue. At nightfall he threw his nets over his shoulder, crossed his garden, climbed over the parapet of dry stones, sprang from one rock to another, and leaped into the boat. Thence to sea. He caught many fish, but it was affirmed that the branch of Melier was always attached to his boat. The Melier is the meddler tree. No one had seen the branch, but everyone believed in it. What fish he had more than he needed, he did not sell, but gave away. The poor accepted his fish, but cherished a grudge against him, notwithstanding, on account of that branch of meddler tree. Such things should not be done. One should not trick the sea. He was a fisherman, but he was not that alone. From instinct, and in order to direct his mind, he had learned three or four trades. He was a joiner, a blacksmith, a cartwright, a caulker, and even a bit of a machinist. No one could bend a wheel better than he. He fabricated all his fishing implements in a manner peculiar to himself. In one corner of the Bue de la Rue he had a little forge and an anvil, and, as the paunch had but one anchor, he had himself and alone made a second for it. This anchor was an excellent one. The ring was of the proper strength, and Gilia, without anyone having told him, discovered the exact dimensions which the stock must have to prevent the anchor from tripping. He had patiently replaced all the nails in the planking of the paunch by tree-nails, which rendered rust-holes impossible. In this manner he had greatly improved the good sea qualities of the paunch. 
he took advantage of it to go from time to time to spend a month or two in some solitary islet like chauzet or casquet people said stay juliette has gone away this caused no one any regret end of chapter six the paunch boat